I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live, from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating. They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to the History of Russia. This is episode 40, Tsar Alexei's Wars. Thanks for listening in. Okay, so where did we get up to? Well, last time we concluded our look at what was going on in Russia, on the home front, during Alexei's reign as Tsar, in an episode which was pretty much dominated by the Great Schism that split the Russian Orthodox Church. This week we'll run through the same period, but this time we'll be checking out the various wars that Alexei got Russia involved in against Safavid Persia and our old friends, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and Sweden. Plus, I'll be squeezing in brief looks at the Copper Riot, which was related to the war with Poland, the Plague of 1654, which wasn't, but Alexei thought it was his fault, and the workings of the Tsar's secret department. And then we'll do an overall summary of and conclusion to Alexei's time as Tsar. There are no messages or announcements this week, So let's just crack on and do some history of Russia. So we'll start by going back to those halcyon days of 1648, where, after a two-day riot, the price of salt has finally been reduced, those nasty foreigners have been confined to the German quarter, well, for most of the time, the legal code is being updated, the church has cracked down on having a good time, and serfdom has been institutionalised. And in parallel with all of that happiness and sunshine, Alexei had turned his attention, in between praying and hunting with his falcons, to the state of the army, which his father Mikhail had attempted to reform back in the 1630s, with the help of foreign, mainly English and Scots, commanders. But after Russia's defeat to Poland in the Smolensk War in 1634, Mikhail had disbanded the regiments because they were too expensive to maintain in peacetime. And so the Scots and English officers went to find other opportunities in Europe, which at the time was hacking itself to bits during the latter stages 
of the Thirty Years' War. But in 1648, the Thirty Years' War ended, and Alexei used this opportunity to attract the foreign professionals back to Russia, although he probably didn't mention the German quarter thing, to assist him in the formation of a modern army that, when the time was right, would perhaps help him to regain the Russian lands that had been occupied by the Poles and the Swedes for nearly half a century. And, if it couldn't do that, then at least it would help put Russia on a par with the other European powers and help to keep the country's borders safe from further invasion. That was the thinking, anyway. So the main thrust of the reform was the mass creation of the so-called New Order Regiments, which consisted of modern-equipped infantry, plus dragoons, which is mounted infantry, and hussars, which are, or is, light and heavy cavalry, that were commanded and drilled by foreign officers using the most up-to-date European practices. But we should also note here that the majority of the infantry regiments were made up of conscripts from the serf population. So these reforms were in full swing when in late 1651, Safavid Persian troops attacked a number of Russian fortifications in the North Caucasus. Okay, so a bit of background is needed here. Who were the Safavids and what were they doing attacking Russian territory? Okay, so very briefly, the Safavids were originally a Turkic-speaking people of either Kurdish or Azerbaijani descent, the jury seems to be out, who had been ruling Persia stroke Iran since the beginning of the 16th century. At its height, the Persia that their dynasty ruled over included all of modern-day Iran, along with Azerbaijan, Bahrain and Armenia, plus large parts of Turkey, Syria and Pakistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Iraq, Afghanistan and the Northern Caucasus. So it was pretty big. And it was the Safavids, who as well as being noted for their love of the arts and their amazing architecture, who had introduced Shia Twelver Islam as the state religion, which therefore distinguished Iran from nearly all of its Sunni Islam neighbours, as is still the case today. Safavid Iran would only continue as a political entity until 1736, and though therefore didn't or won't be having much of an impact upon our story, apart from the spat that took place in 1651 of course, which anyway seems to have been caused by the Russians, accidentally on purpose, building a couple of border forts that were not actually on the border. They were several miles inside Iranian territory. And so when this came to the attention of the local Safavid governor, he sent in troops to destroy the forts and push the Russians back over the border. When this in turn came to Alexei's attention, his initial thought was to send in the Cossacks to sort out the mess as they were nearer, and his partially reformed army was not yet fit for purpose. But then he changed his mind, and instead decided to send envoys to discuss the situation with the Safavid ruler, Shah Abbas II. Now, all of this coming to the attention of meant that the Russian envoys didn't set off to make the journey to Isfahan until August 1653, some 20 or so months after the inverted commas here, war had first started. And in any case, after so much time had elapsed, neither side seemed particularly bothered about the hostilities, 
especially when the Shah stated that the conflict had been started without his consent. And with that, both parties agreed to let bygones be bygones. None of which really counts as a war, really, does it? Unlike the situation, though, that would come about in 1654, when Russia decided to go to war with Poland. But before we get there, we need to look at the causes. And to do that, we need to quickly catch up with what has been going on in the Commonwealth. So remember that Vladislav IV, who'd taken over as King of Poland and Grand Duke of Lithuania back in 1632, after the death of his father Sigismund, well, he'd reigned for 18 years, and then in 1648 he died childless, and so his half-brother, John II Casimir, took over the reins. This change of regime happened to coincide with the start of a major Cossack rebellion in the eastern parts of the western Ruthenian lands, don't worry, I'll come back to that in a minute, which were led by a local hetman, Bodan or Bogdan Chemlinsky, who was the leader of the Zaporizhian Cossacks, who over the past few years had moved from their southern homelands below the Dnieper Rapids up into modern-day central Ukraine, sort of around the Kiev area. Before we move on, though, a quick geography refresher is in order. Remember that after the Mongols had effectively left the scene, the old Ruslands were divided up between the Duchy of Moscow, who took the northern and eastern bits, and Lithuania, later to become the Commonwealth, which took the southern and western chunks, or Ruthenia. So Chemlinsky's rebellion, which was a combined Cossack-Tatar insurgency, eventually resulted in the eastern parts of Ruthenia being wrestled away from the Commonwealth to become an independent Cossack hetmanate. Well, for a while. And just to finish off on the geography, the southern parts of the Dnieper Valley and the Crimean Peninsula were run by the Tartars and their overlords, the Ottomans. Never feels quite right when I say Tartars. I've heard people say Tatars, but that doesn't sound right either. Tartars it is. So in effect then, Ruthenia is now divided between the Commonwealth in the west and the brand new Cossack Hetmanate in the east, and to the south of them both are the Ottoman stroke Tartars. And so I hope all of that is a bit clearer. The rebellion, which by the way featured mass atrocities committed by the Cossacks and their Tatar allies against the local population, especially Roman Catholics and Jews, hadn't just happened by accident. You see, for many years prior to 1648, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth had been in the doldrums, and Vladislav's, or, to use his correct name, Władysław's death, you see, my Polish is improving, marked the end of the Commonwealth's relative stability as conflicts and internal tensions that had been growing over several decades started to come to a head. A fact noticed not only by the Cossacks, but also later on by Tsar Alexei, who was encouraged by Chemlinsky's successful rebellion, which by 1653 had achieved its aims and was all over by the shouting. Plus, the Tsar now had a brand new shiny army and was just itching to use it. On the 1st of October 1653, a National Assembly met in Moscow to sanction war against the Commonwealth and start negotiations for an alliance with the Cossacks down in Kiev, 
the latter leading to the 1654 Treaty of Pereyaslav, which would eventually result in Russia, no doubt as planned all along, going on to effectively dominate the Hetmanate, but not quite yet. Also, in the April of 1654, the Tsar's army was on the move, and the initial part of what would eventually be called the Thirteen Years' War, or the First Northern War, got off to a great start for the Russians. Smolensk was besieged and taken by the September, with Alexei himself taking part in the fun, although in what capacity, we don't know. And then in 1655, the Tsar's army took back a large part of the territory that had been lost back in the time of troubles, plus a large chunk of Polish and Lithuanian land, with Minsk, Lviv and Vilnius all falling to the Russians. From the Commonwealth's perspective, though, things were about to go from bad to worse, because in the summer of 1655, Sweden, which had also been watching events with interest, decided to join the party. So Sweden had emerged from the Thirty Years' War as one of the best-managed, financially sound and military robust countries in Europe. And this was mainly due to the fact that it had one of the most brilliantly effective and practical European statesmen of the 17th century, Axel Oxenstierna, pulling the strings. Oxenstierna had been Gustavus Adolphus's right-hand man during the Thirty Years' War, and when the latter had died in 1632, he acted as regent for Gustavus's successor, Christina, who was only six years old. Axel's regency lasted until 1644, when Christina was 18, but he continued to do most of the heavy lifting for the Swedish state for the next 10 years before eventually dying in 1654. 1654 was also the year in which the eccentric Christina decided to abdicate, and she would eventually end up converting to Catholicism and living in Rome, leaving her first cousin, Karl, or Charles, to rule Sweden as Charles X. And we've done this before, but even though he was only the fourth king called Charles to have ruled Sweden. I'll have to explain that one one of these days. With most of the Eastern Commonwealth now under Russian control, Charles decided to get in on the act, mainly because he was opportunistic and Poland was looking weak, but also to stop Russia from gobbling up any more Commonwealth territory. In the summer of 1655, the Swedish army swept down through northern and western Poland, destroying and plundering most of the towns and cities, captured Warsaw or Warsaw, temporarily bringing the Commonwealth economically and administratively to its knees. The king, John II Casimir, fled to Austria, and Alexei's armies quickly took the rest of Lithuania and eastern Poland. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, 
like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Then in early 1656, the Commonwealth, now in desperate straits, started peace negotiations with both Sweden and Russia which was in hindsight a really clever move because it not only gave them some much needed breathing space, but also started a serious quarrel between Alexei and Charles X over who would get what. And John Casimir, realising that his enemies were now divided and with help from the Austrian Habsburg envoys, suggested to their Russian counterparts that the real problem here was Sweden and that if the Tsar wasn't careful, then maybe he would be next in the firing line. To be honest, they were probably saying the same kind of thing to the Swedes, but in May 1656, it was Alexei who, full of hubris and overestimating his position, blinked first and declared war on Sweden. The Russian army struck north into Estonia and Livonia and captured the most important city, Dorpatz. But after this initial thrust, Swedish resistance stiffened and things became bogged down in a long and bloody stalemate. In the meantime, and with Russia and Sweden at each other's throats, John Casimir slipped back into Warsaw and started rebuilding the machinery of state. And actually, so successful was this rejuvenation that by the end of the 1550s, Alexei, whose army was now seriously reduced, realised that it was the Commonwealth and not Sweden which now posed the more serious threat. And realising that he couldn't fight both, and with his army continued to suffer heavy losses, Alexei decided to call it a day in Livonia. The main theatre of the First Northern War gravitated westwards, as Sweden was now free to settle some scores with their old enemy Denmark. All of which, in 1661, resulted in the Peace of Cardis, with Russia handing back all of its earlier gains. The war with the Commonwealth, which had never really stopped, dragged on for a further six years until it too was concluded by a peace treaty at Andrusovo in February 1667. The Commonwealth got to keep hold of Polotsk and Polish Livonia, but Afanasy Neschokin, who had become Alexei's first minister, after Nikon had been exiled, and who was playing with a particularly poor hand, used every trick in the diplomatic playbook to somehow keep Smolensk Russian, and this time for good, and Kiev under the control of the Cossacks. But, as I've mentioned a couple of times, this would only be for the time being. So the wars were now over, and really you have to wonder whether any of them had been worth it, as apart from Smolensk and a kind of loose control that Russia exerted over Kiev, little else had been gained, and any dreams of an outlet or port on the Baltic remained just that, wishful thinking. Okay, so let's put our weapons down and put our maps aside and take a brief look at three further events or items that I just didn't get the time to cover in the last episode. 
Now, the first of these involves the Russian economy, which by the start of the 1660s was starting to give serious cause for concern. And there were three main reasons as to why this was the case. First two are pretty simple, really. Number one, wars cost money. Number two, wars disrupt trade, which in turn causes less money to be made, especially when those wars are with your nearest neighbours. And then finally three, and, and this is a bit more complex. So when the war had started, Alexei and the council, foreseeing potential financial difficulties ahead, had taken the unusual step of directing the state mint to start producing large numbers of hitherto unseen copper coins. Now I'm no financial expert and I can't really explain the inner workings of a state's economy, but the impact of all of this war and copper were to increase government revenues on paper, which was a good thing, but then start somehow to cause inflation, which was a bad thing, because then the government devalued the ruble, which steadied things for a while, but by 1661 had turned out to be a really bad thing. And by 1662, the situation was even worse. Inflation and therefore prices had continued to rise. Large numbers of counterfeit copper coins had flooded into the market. Some said at the direction and the gain of certain government officials, including Ilya Miloslavsky, the Tsar's father-in-law, and the Muscovite citizenry were getting restless. And at some point in the middle of July, Vorovskia Listki, or black lists containing the names of certain officials, merchants, and their crimes, were posted in several locations around Moscow. And then on the 25th of July, in the early morning, some 10,000 people gathered in the streets near the Kremlin. A proclamation was read out, uh, and it effectively said, we've had enough. And then the crowd started to march towards the Tsar's palace at Kolomenskoye, just outside the city where they demanded the surrender of the traitors and the immediate stabilisation of the economy. We've been through all of this before. The Tsar, flanked by his boyars, promised to lower taxes and conduct an investigation into the financial malpractices. And taking him at his word, the crowd started to head back to Moscow. But they were met halfway by another large group of insurgents who had been rioting in the city and who had destroyed a number of houses belonging to some of the merchants. Both groups of insurgents then decided to head back to Kolomenskoye to put further pressure on the Tsar, only to discover that in the meantime, Alexei had called in the troops and the guards, around 8,000 of them. The rebels made a run for it, but around 3,000 of them were rounded up at gunpoint and arrested and subsequently around a thousand were executed, with a larger number suffering torture and then exiled to Siberia. The second event occurred back in 1654. Just after Alexei and his entourage had set off west with the army, Moscow was hit by a serious outbreak of the plague. Appearing from nowhere, this plague swept through the city and the surrounding areas, and by late June and early July, thousands were dying and thousands more were fleeing, and therefore spreading disease. The boyars who had remained in Moscow panicked, and sent word to the Tsar's party, 
imploring Alexei to tell them what to do. And apparently, the Tsar was horrified, seeing the plague as a visitation from God and divine punishment for unknown sins. But he also realised that he needed to act quickly and try to limit the spread. And soon afterwards, a couple of preventative measures were introduced. Checkpoints were set up on the main roads out of Moscow and the guards, those of whom were still alive, were ordered to send anyone trying to escape the plague back to where they had come from and to shoot anyone who didn't. But this had kind of limited success as people soon worked out how to bypass the checkpoints. But then a series of quarantines were put in place, particularly around the Tsar's family. All communication in and out of Moscow was carefully monitored and it's even reported that money used to pay the soldiers, copper or otherwise, was washed before it was doled out. Eventually, and with the arrival of colder weather, the plague started to diminish, but not before it had claimed the lives of around 80,000 people, and for the rest of his life, any mention of the word plague would send the Tsar into a mild panic, and his prayer sessions would double. And then finally, in 1654, the Tsar had formed the Taini Prikaz, or the Secret Department. Now, the original purpose of this body was to look after the Crown Estates, Alexei's private finances, oh, and pay for the upkeep of 3,000 falcons and pay the wages for the 200 falcon handlers. And in case you're trying to work that out, that's 15 birds per handler. Seems sort of reasonable. But gradually, as time went on, and especially after the copper riots of 1662, the secret department morphed into something darker and more clandestine, and became, in effect, a 17th century version of the FSB, GRU, and the Foreign Intelligence Service all rolled into one. Keeping tabs on Russian citizens at home and abroad, and foreign citizens residing in Russia via a network of spies and informers who kept a close watch on who was doing what and who was saying what to whom, and reporting it all back to the Tsar and his ministers. Okay, so the last few years of Alexei's life were fairly quiet and tranquil, although before he died, suddenly of kidney and heart failure, in January 1676, aged just 47, war had broken out in Ruthenia between the Poles and the Ottomans. Now, this was a conflict that Russia would end up getting involved in against the Turks, but we'll cover all of that during the reign of Alexei's successor, his eldest surviving son, Feodor. So over the last three episodes, we've followed the ups and downs of Alexei's 31-year reign. And for perhaps the first time in the podcast, we've also been able to get a more complete picture of what it was like to be the man in charge. And unlike some of the other main characters we've looked at, I think that Alexei comes across as a real person, warts and all, rather than just a name on a list. He wasn't a perfect ruler though, perhaps not even that good, and I don't think he was a natural. He made mistakes early in his career with his choices for the first minister and patriarch, got involved in what with hindsight was an unnecessary war with Sweden, had supported the reforms that went on to cause the schism and had waited too long to sort the Nikon situation out. 
And although he was outwardly mild-mannered and affable, he could act cruelly and vindictively, particularly as we've seen with the aftermath of the situations in Novgorod and Pskov, and then the Copper Riot. And of course, there was the legitimisation of serfdom. On the plus side, I suppose, some of the lands that the Commonwealth had appropriated back in the time of the Troubles had been won back, and the army plus the legal code had been reformed. Also, dynastically, he'd done his fair share, and from two marriages, a total of 16 children had been born, with 11 of those, three sons and eight daughters, managing to outlive their father. During the latter stages of his reign, the Tsar had managed to keep a close eye on family and court rivalries, and whilst he was around, everyone towed the line. But after his death, it would be a different matter, and, as we will soon see, factionalism and vendettas will become the order of the day. I think I'll conclude by saying that if Tsar Mikhail and Philaret, between 1613 and 1645, had laid the groundwork for the Romanov dynasty, Alexei, almost by sheer force of character alone, had, between 1645 and 1676, taken that legacy and managed somehow to set the foundations in place for the 18th century imperial Russian state. Okay, that's where we're going to leave things this week. Next time, we'll be putting the main narrative to one side and taking that long-promised look at serfdom, as well as the structure and hierarchy of Russian society in the late 17th century. So until then, stay safe, look after yourselves, and I'll speak to you all soon.